Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. The month of May, Dr. Anthony Fauci talks a partial reopening of the U.S. economy. Research restrictions. China limits information about the origins of the virus. And historic but insufficient. Major oil-producing nations agree on supply cuts, but plenty of challenges remain. It's Monday. Let's make a move. all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us. And I hope everyone that celebrates Easter was able to connect with family and friends in some way, of course, this year. We saw the first Zoom Easter and Passover technology is keeping us together in these uncertain times. And that is incredibly critical at this moment. Zooming now briefly to the markets. Wall Street back in action after the long holiday weekend. Futures, as you can see, a touch lower at this moment following the best week for the S&P 500 since the mid-1970s. The earnings season begins this week in earnest too. And we'll tell us more about the economic force out faced by big and small companies alike. The handover from Asia was cautious, particularly in Japan, as you can see. Hong Kong markets were closed for Easter Monday. Big news in the oil sector too, a historic supply cut deal from the major oil producers, but a drop in an ocean of oil compared with the fall in demand that we've seen amid the lockdowns, shut-ins around the world. More detail on what we saw there in just a second. Before that, Goldman Sachs suggesting investors will look through earnings season thanks to the trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus from the Federal Reserve. That stock markets may have seen the worst, also assuming there is no second wave of COVID-19 infections. And of course, that remains the big question as the world watches the likes of China, Spain and Italy's efforts at easing restrictions. As I mentioned there, Dr. Anthony Fauci told CNN this weekend that the U.S. could see some easing of the lockdown measures in May. To our drivers now, and Richard Quest joins me with more. Richard, interesting to see Dr. Anthony Fauci talking about the possibility of seeing a restriction or reducing of the restrictions in May. My view is we need, if we're going to get it, a task force that covers every sector of the US economy, retailers, pharmaceuticals, the construction industry, just to give their perspective on how and when perhaps they could ease the lockdown measures that we've got right now. If you accept, Julia, and good morning to you, and I hope you had a, a, a restful weekend and a good weekend. Um, if you accept that it is not going to be simply switching a light bulb on, a light switch moment to restart the economy, you have to understand who goes back to work, in what order, what precautions are necessary, and are you ready if there is a second wave of infections? So I think the earnings season will be extremely interesting, not because of what it's going to tell us about what we've seen so far, but what companies are telling us about how fit they are for when things reopen. Everything now, in terms of numbers, is not about the mirror. It's about the map forward. And earnings season, economic statistics, we've got a whole slew of them uh, this week, Julie that will be coming out. For example, we've got industrial production, we've got business inventories, we've got residential construction, all these numbers. We don't necessarily care 
about what with what they tell us about what's happened. But from them, we can extrapolate what happens next. Yeah, we know it's bad. And to your exact point, I agree with you. There needs to be some synchronicity, waves of different sectors perhaps coming at yeah. different times depending on what's available to them in terms of testing, of course, too. To this exact point, the, the point that Goldman Sachs made about we've seen the worst for markets if we don't see a second wave of infections at this moment, they said look ahead to 2021. How do we look ahead? How do these companies forecast when we oh. have so little clarity at this moment about what the future looks like? I think there's a lot more clarity than that, in a sense. Each individual company knows its current position. It knows its order book, cancelled and real. It knows its employee numbers. It knows its future direction. Now, what it doesn't know is the date upon which it's going to be able to get back up to full steam or how consumers are going to respond. But it plans on the basis of what it does know about its own house. I've been doing a lot of reading about this over the weekend. And more and more what I was hearing the experts say is companies look to their knitting. You control what you can. You get the grants or loans that you can and you prepare yourself for what might come. And I think, bearing in mind, Julia, that from those numbers last week, those unemployment numbers, the uh, initial claims, we're able to extrapolate quite a lot of data. If you think of how the week is going to proceed with data, I think by the time we get to Friday, we'll have a better idea of how bad and the prospect for what. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. What this is also going to come down to is confidence of workers to get back to work and confidence of consumers, to your point, to get back out there. And yeah. for that, we need to get this right. Richard Quest, thank you so much. Thank you. Right to Europe now, and a milestone for one of the continent's hardest hit nations. Factory and construction workers in Spain return to their jobs as the country relaxes some of the lockdown restrictions. Scott McLean joins us from Madrid. Scott, great to have you with us once again. So, a cautious start, specific sectors going back to work. To my conversation there with Richard, what are workers saying about how confident they are? to be back at work at this moment. Yeah, it, it, it's far from unanimous right now. So officially, Julia, the lockdown ends on April 26th at the absolute earliest. But as you said, about 300,000 workers in Madrid alone will get to go back to their jobs beginning today in, in sectors like construction and manufacturing. I'll just show you where we are. We're at the Principe Pio station where you can see this is the intersection of several different metro lines, several different subway lines. It's one of the busiest in all of Spain. Uh, and you can see even today, officials say there's a fraction of the normal ridership, but there's a steady flow of people here. Police are actually handing out uh, these surgical masks to everyone coming in and out, everyone who wants them, and you'd really be hard-pressed to find anyone who's not wearing them. This is a scene that would have been completely unthinkable at the beginning of this outbreak, Julie, because there weren't even enough of these masks for hospital workers, let alone for people on the metro system. We spoke to one woman uh, earlier today who said, the last two weeks, she hasn't even left her house to buy bread. And so she's understandably nervous now about going back to her job, which she cannot do from home. We've met other people who say they're pretty happy to be going back because the bottom line is they need the money. They have to be able to pay their bills. 
This decision, though, is not without controversy, especially considering that Spain is still getting about three or four thousand new infections of the coronavirus every single day. The president of the Catalan region called it reckless and irresponsible. And also keep in mind that the reason that these workers were told to stay home two weeks into the outbreak in the first place was so that the hospitals, that the ICUs weren't completely overwhelmed. And remember that Spain still has 13 hotels that they're using as hospital wards in addition to a convention center. One other quick thing that I'll show you, Julia, and that's just this incoming train here. You can get a sense of how many people are on it and how people are able with some exceptions to keep a you know one or two meter distance but again the reason why these masks are so important is just in case people cannot do the social distancing they can't keep their distance on these trains that they have the masks as sort of an extra layer of protection but whether this was a good decision or a bad decision we're all going to find out in the numbers in a couple days or a couple weeks from now you raised some really excellent points. The challenge here for the economy of remaining under such stringent lockdown measures, but to your point, they're still seeing plenty of cases on a daily basis. So just watching what the impact of this is going to be is going to be critical, not just for Spain, for, but for everyone watching. Stay safe, Scott. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. To China now, where the nation is reporting 108 new infections, including 10 locally transmitted cases. It's the first time since March 10th that China has seen double-digit numbers in those locally transmitted cases. In the meantime, the Chinese government is imposing restrictions on the publication of academic research into the origins of COVID-19. Ivan Watson is uh, live in Hong Kong with all the details for us. Ivan, great to have you with us. We can talk about the number of cases, but I do want to hone in on the restrictions that, that I know your investigative work suggests are being placed on where this virus came from. And it's not just Chinese people, it's the whole world wants to know more about how this happened. Yeah, I think everybody on the planet can agree mm. that the more research available on the coronavirus, the better right now. But we have learned that the Chinese government has imposed these new regulations that restrict the publication of research conducted by academic institutions about the coronavirus in China. Now, it was a bit of a detective story to, to learn about this. Last week, we spotted a web page on the site of one of China's most elite universities, that's Fudan University, that actually published these new guidelines. It said, quote, any paper that traces the origin of the virus must be strictly managed. And there were instructions that academics had to submit applications to a state committee to get permission to then public the result, publish the results of their research. Now, we called the number of a Ministry of Education official who was listed on this web page, as well as email address and, and phone number and name, to confirm this, and the individual who answered the phone said, yes, there are in fact these new guidelines, but this is not for public consumption. And shortly after that phone call, that webpage disappeared from the university's website. But we have since learned that at least two other Chinese universities have published similar guidelines managing the publication of this information. Now, why is this so important? 
First of all, the first known cases of coronavirus were diagnosed in the Chinese city of Wuhan in December of last year. There was a trend of scientists and doctors when they tried to share information about this, to sound the alarm, that they were persecuted by different levels of the Chinese government. The most famous case was Dr. Li Wenliang, who later actually, after being summoned to the police and reprimanded for going public about the coronavirus, caught the disease and died of it in February. We have reached out to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, to the Ministry of Science and Technology, have not heard anything back from these Chinese government institutions. But we have spoken with a number of researchers around the world. Their first word for this is censorship. And they argue that this is an attempt by the Chinese government to continue to manage the message about the coronavirus, especially its origin, which has become this real political football between the Trump administration and the Chinese government. Yeah, and it will continue clearly because one, the restriction of information helps no one and everyone wants to make sure that nothing like this can ever happen again. So um, we will continue to focus on this. Ivan, great work. Thank you for that. Ivan Watson there in Hong Kong for us. The OPEC Plus oil nations have agreed a record production cut of near 10 million barrels a day. The unprecedented deal is an attempt to stabilize a market upended by a devastating drop in demand and, of course, the brutal price war between the biggest players. John Deptarius joins us now. John, a historic deal, but already big analysts are coming out and saying, look, it's simply insufficient in the face of the overwhelming demand destruction that we're seeing around the world. I think you and I agree, even if this is a big deal. Uh, yeah, it's an underwhelming response by the market because we're unclear, Julia, what's gonna happen uh, in the third quarter. It has settled in here, about seven billion people we have in the world. Uh, nearly half are in lockdown, so that means there is no demand. We know it's dropped about 30% in this current month, and does that carry on to May and then June? Uh, this is a huge question mark, but we cannot sneeze at the deal. I mean, it's nearly 10 million barrels a day from OPEC plus minus what Mexico refused to cut. That was the extra 300,000 barrels. Uh, and they have this math here, Julia. It's uh, 10 roughly from OPEC plus. They're counting on four or five from the US, Norway, Canada, and a couple of others in terms of dropping production by the end of the year. I think that's real, but it's hard to count right now because of the antitrust concerns. And then they're saying by Wednesday, we're gonna start hearing from the IEA and others, uh, the industrialized countries, how much are they gonna buy to put into their strategic petroleum reserves? This is gonna be done because it's a good price, but also to uh, mop up the excess demand and support prices. So they're thinking all these things will add up to 20 million barrels. What's the market saying? Show us the results before we start coming back into this market in a big way. Yeah, still too much uncertainty. President Trump tweeted that this was a de facto rescue for, for U.S. jobs. But, you know, I look at the price of oil at this moment, and as you and I have discussed many times, it's not high enough to cushion some of these shale producers. They're going to need more support, surely, or higher prices. 
I would say that's a premature victory lap by President yeah. Trump. He did a fantastic job of ending the price war and bringing Saudi Arabia and Russia together. But uh, 20 to $25 a barrel where we are today does not rescue the 10 million plus jobs. And I'm thinking of auto dealers and the barbecue houses and the estate agents. It's not just those on the, on the drilling rigs or in uh, the services department. Uh, so there's a long way to go. This should mop up a lot of oil, 2 billion barrels by the end of uh, 2020. It should have the desired effect. Just not yet. Uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, the Minister of Energy for Saudi Arabia, said that OPEC Plus is alive and well. Julie, I'd say it's revived. Uh, we had uh, pressure on him and Saudi Arabia in general on Capitol Hill saying you have to have a deal or the tariffs will come back on or we'll stop the weapon sales. So he called another meeting Sunday night, making sure he had his uh, ducks in a row there, Julia. He did not want to have Monday trading without a deal. But they have to restore confidence in the overall market that this will be sustained and delivered. Yeah, absolutely. If this is a mop-up, you need, what, a million mops, not just one, quite frankly, for all the excess supplies still out there. John Deptarius, thank <laughs> you so much it. for that. I know. Work on my imagery. <laughs> all right. Thank you, John. All right. We're going to take a break on First Move. Coming up on the show, though, a fintech fix. Could online lenders be the key to unlocking speedier small business support? Plus, food chain fears, concerns about the U.S. meat supply as coronavirus forces plants to close. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures still pointing to a modestly lower Wall Street open after last week's market rally. The Dow and the S&P finishing the holiday shortened week with double-digit gains. It was the best week for the S&P, in fact, since 1974. Investors bracing for a whole array of data this week from corporate earnings to U.S. retail sales and first quarter GDP growth numbers, of course, from China and the latest U.S. jobless claims numbers on Thursday. Now, as we await the opening bell, oil stocks are higher this morning pre-market after the OPEC Plus decision to cut oil production too. In the meantime, congressional leaders will try once again this week to pass an additional $250 billion in aid for small businesses struggling to survive the COVID-19 crisis. Small businesses employ around half of the U.S. workforce. They're a critical driver of the economy. But the Paycheck Protection Program has had a pretty rocky rollout so far, with firms scrambling to secure loans that should help them save jobs. What more is required? Joining us now, Karen Mills, a former administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration, the SBA, under the Obama administration, and is a currently, currently a senior fellow at Harvard Business School. She's also the author of the book Fintech, Small Business and the American Dream. Karen, fantastic to have you with us. Overwhelmed is the word I would use just in terms of the sheer volume of loans that are trying to be created here to support small business. Is and are fintech lenders perhaps a key to getting money out quicker, particularly to some of the smallest businesses in the nation? Well, I think this is going to be the week that we see fintech come in and maybe even save the day. You know, the next two weeks are critical for America's small business owners. As you know, they have really been struggling. They only have about three or four weeks of cash on hand, and they've been closed for that period of time. So you saw it in the unemployment numbers. And as you said, these are half of America's jobs. So we did have one week of the plan so far. And as you said, it was bumpy. 
Banks are not known for moving quickly. And this is $349 billion worth. In my tenure, we had a big crisis and we did a record year. We did 30 billion. So this is 10x that volume. So what we're seeing now is that people are applying. They say they've got about 200 billion approved, but only about 1%, according to some information I received this morning, seems to be flowing into the hands of small businesses. So the question is, what are we going to do to get the money out there? And over the weekend, we had some good news, which is that Square and PayPal and Intuit, which runs QuickBooks, got approved to be direct SBA lenders. So this could be a real game changer for small business owners because QuickBooks, for instance, has a TurboTax-like uh, calculator where you can go on and it will tell you how to get through all these calculations. And it may even have a button you can press and it uploads all your information from QuickBooks. So that kind of thing could take away a lot of the pain. Then we just have to get the funding to flow, which means that the Fed has to start buying this paper that they promised to buy so the banks and others can replenish their balance sheet. And then we need Congress to give us more money because we're going to run out. I mean, you made a point that, and I heard the same thing over the weekend, despite the fact that a lot of these loans are being processed, just 1% of small businesses are receiving the money. And a lot of that, according to the lenders, is a backlog at the Small Business Administration because they haven't given out approval or authorization numbers because they're completely overwhelmed by the number of, of elements that they have to go through here in order to give that approval. In fact, they're being told and they're telling the banks whatever you've received so far is not enough for you to be able to release the money. Is it just a case of bringing fintech lenders here in to provide money or does more firepower and support need to be given to the Small Business Administration to unlock that choke point? Well, I think they brought in some firepower in the form of Amazon. And my understanding is that they have actually gotten uh, some of that bottleneck moving. So ETRAN is up and moving, and they've got about $200 billion through that pipeline. Now, the question is, where's the funding coming from? And in fact, the funding comes from the banks and their balance sheets. So I'm not sure why they haven't pressed the button and transferred the cash. Part of it is they're kind of worried they're going to run out of money on their balance sheet and they mm. want to see this Fed facility up and running. And I did hear this weekend that that might take 10 days and we do not have 10 days. They also, for the fintechs, they don't have a lot of money on their balance sheet, so they have to line up the cash. Now, they're pretty good. They've been working for two weeks on the tech. You know, they're getting the 200 people coding all weekend and all week. And they're going to be fine on the front end and processing, but they've got to get the cash flowing as well. So this is the week of the cash. But I do want to shout out to those frontline SBA workers and bankers and small business owners who, um, you know, are counseling and helping small businesses. This is overwhelming and we yeah. will get through it. Small business owners will help each other through it as well. How many, even in a best case scenario, as we see the money flowing and let's assume that Congress agrees more money for this program, how many businesses in the United States do you think close and never reopen 
or decide they simply can't make it through this process. How many are we talking? Because we have 30 million small and medium-sized businesses in this country. How many do we lose? No, I'm really worried about this. And, and I've said, although it's just a guess, you know, we could lose 20% of our small business owners. There's a lot who are on the edge anyway, and they could just decide, you know, this is too much for me. I'm gonna turn away from my business and do something else. And the problem is, we saw this in 2009, when we lose our small business owners in our economy, it's very hard to start them up again. So I've been talking to Congress about a program called Restart America, where we're gonna have to have local grants, you know, two $10,000 to $10,000 grants to say, you know what, maybe this is a good time for you to start a new business because we could really have um, trouble getting a V-shape or a U-shape recovery if we lose our small business owners. That's why this program is, is just fundamental. And I'm glad to see Congress put a priori priority on it, but they better get the next tranche of money out soon. I know. I mean, if we're talking about 20% of small and medium-sized enterprises, we're talking 6 million small businesses that don't make it past this process. In your mind, as Congress battles over whether to give more money to states, uh, whether to give more money to healthcare workers, which indeed is required, should they together be prioritizing this program specifically simply because this is about saving jobs today? Well, I do want to give a shout out to all our healthcare and hospital workers, Spalding Hospital that um, I was talking to yesterday. You know, these are our frontline workers. We need to support them. But small business is the backbone of the economy. And what I say to Congress now is more money and keep it simple. We do not need more restrictions. I think the pipes will start flowing to small businesses soon, like this week. And I think these fintechs are going to give the banks a run for their money. It's going to be interesting to watch in the future how this is a game changer for fintechs. They've been struggling for recognition. They aren't federally approved and regulated. If they do a great job here, which I'm betting actually they will, and serve small business owners, small businesses are going to remember this and they're going to learn to trust these providers. And uh, banks are going to step up and try to be more responsive as a result. So I'm hopeful for this week, although we still have a long way to go. Yeah, this adds a lot more competition to your point. This is the moment you build clients and you build clients for life. Karen, fantastic to have you with us. Karen Mills, former administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration and senior fellow at Harvard Business School. Stay safe, Karen, and great to have you with us. Thank you for that. The opening bell is next. Stay with us. back to First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley and uh, U.S. stocks are trading for the first session this week. We are a touch lower this morning, as you can see, around half a percentage point across the board. Light trading today. Many global investors out for Easter Monday. We've also got earnings season to keep an eye on. It kicks off tomorrow in the United States when J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo will be reporting results. We've also got companies like GE, FedEx and Starbucks. They've already said that they have little visibility into how bad things will be once we get beyond the first quarter of this year. Bank of America is predicting earnings could fall some 29 percent for 2020 overall. Goldman's sees a drop of around a third so even bigger than that, perhaps 
even more. The challenge here, of course, is predicting something about the future when things are, remain so uncertain on the health front. Now, the CEO of Smithfields is warning that America's meat supply could be at risk after he closed down one of the country's largest meatpacking facilities. Several of the employees had tested positive for COVID-19. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, great to have you with us. Just put his comments in perspective. How important is this particular factory in the operations of this country to U.S. meat supply? Yeah, Julia, Smithfield is the world's biggest pork producer, and this plant is one of their biggest. It accounts, according to the CEO, for 4 to 5% of America's pork supply. So it is significant, this one facility, but there are more than a few cases there. According to the governor of uh, South Dakota, 240 or so out of 430 active cases in the state overall. So that's more than half. So the idea uh, is to close the plant down, uh, they say, until further notice uh, to, to sort of get a handle on this. 3,700 people work there. So the idea would be to protect the rest of them. But the CEO, as you mentioned, is against this. He said, look, this could cause severe, perhaps disastrous repercussions for many in the supply chain. First and foremost, he says, our nation's livestock farmers. And particularly crucial, what he said, we have a stark choice as a nation. Uh, we are either going to produce food or not, even in the face of COVID-19. His point is that food producers are essential, that they have to keep working, even in the face of this pandemic. Controversial, though, given the number of, uh, of cases in that one facility. Absolutely. And these workers are also on the front lines. It's just a different kind of front line. Everything has to be done to protect the safety in terms of social distancing and, and protective equipment. It's, it's a huge challenge here, Claire. It's a challenge as well that another big producer in this country faces, and that's Amazon. And they're restricting now the number of people that they're willing to send groceries out to. You have to join a wait list if you're not already a customer. Yeah, you can't just sign up now, Julia, for Amazon Fresh or, or Whole Foods. You have to sign up for an invitation and wait to be called. So essentially, a wait list. Now, this uh, is something that we see a lot of uh, people who deliver groceries doing. For example, Ocado in the UK, they aren't accepting any new sign-ups. They're, they're simply allocating to existing customers and the most vulnerable people. And, and Amazon are rolling out a number of different measures of, as well. They are reducing hours in certain Whole Foods stores so they can be used to fulfill online orders. One store in California, by the way, has been converted into a warehouse, essentially a fulfillment center for online orders. And they are, they say, going to introduce a new system, which is a sort of virtual wait in line for people waiting for delivery slots. Because as we all know, these delivery slots are essentially currency in this time. It's very difficult to get one. These companies are stretched to capacity. Amazon says they've already ramped up order capacity by 60%. They're trying to do more, but they are also facing, you know, not only friction in the workplace with these safety measures, but but also employees at risk of getting sick. So this is this is a problem that's difficult to staff. Yeah, it's one of the ongoing challenges. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, as President Trump muses reopening the U.S. economy by May the 1st, as we've heard, infectious disease experts like Dr. Anthony Fauci are still calling for a great deal of caution. The final decisions, of course, will come from state governors. Among those who've had the virus and recovered, there are growing numbers who are ready for work. And this is where antibody testing becomes so crucial. Dr. Fauci thinks those tests will be ready in a week or so. Our next guest advocates mass testing, but also has concerns about possible reinfections too. Dr. Eric Feigelding is epidemiologist and a health economist at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Fantastic to have you with us once again, sir. I remember us talking 
right at the beginning when we were watching what was happening in China and you were one of the first that said the infection rate here is far higher than people realise. So thank you for your guidance at that point. Where do you think we are at this stage in the United States? Are we ready for the discussion about reopening? I think reopening is still very, very risky and dangerous, considering that so much of our testing is still, after all these months, still bottlenecked. There are estimates that the undercount of the actual cases in the United States could be anywhere between 10 and 100 X lower than the actual count of infected people. And this is worrisome for many, many reasons. But uh, even we have now have masks because um, we think that perhaps 25% of all patients who are infected could be completely asymptomatic or presymptomatic. In Iceland, they think it could be even 50%. And with that many people spreading the virus, to say that we could reopen within just a matter of weeks is still very, very risky. I don't think we've plateaued yet. And uh, we can't really know for sure we plateaued without adequate testing. Is that why it's not just about testing, but also perhaps essential to have antibody testing just to give us a sense of of how many people in the U.S. population, we'll, we'll leave out the rest of the world, may have already suffered with this virus without even knowing? Mm. Is this going to be a critical yes. element too? And, and how good is the, the technology, the science that we have on this regard? Right. So antibody testing is different from regular mm. uh, nucleic acid virus. Antibody testing tests your blood for antibodies, which are basically your own molecule that fights the virus. It means you previously had it at some point in the past few months, up to a year. The issue is there's one study that says one in three people who previously recovered from COVID-19 still have very, very low levels or no levels at all. 5% have no antibody whatsoever, and one in three have very low. And so the issue is how reliable is this? Do those people have immunity? We don't know for sure. And the test for the serology, this antibody testing, is still being validated. We want to know how accurate it is. Hopefully we'll get answers soon. But should we carry around antibody immunity passports? It's a little early. And again, that opens a whole can of worms around many other issues. I mean, this is what China's doing. You now get a QR code on your mobile phone that says that you you don't have the virus at this stage, never mind whether you have the antibodies or not. So it's it's just one one step. You've also been tweeting yes. about South Korea and the suggestions of reactivation do you think there's reactivation going on with people having symptoms, then not having symptoms, and then testing positive again? Or do you think it comes down to faulty tests? It's, it's a combination of faulty tests where the nucleic acid PCR test is only 50% accurate. There's a lot of false negative. But in addition, we know that there is problems of people getting reactivated. And that means people who've recovered fever all gone, multiple negative tests. A few weeks later, they have a brand new uh, spike in their fever and symptoms all over again. And this is where we don't know. These people, they supposedly have immunity. I bet their uh, antibody tests would come up positive, yet they reactivated for some reason whatsoever. This virus is so new. Again, we spoke two, week, two months ago, and since then, the world has completely changed 
and we're still learning more about the virus. So it's a little bit too early to reopen business as usual starting uh, May 1st. I think there's a lot more ways to go before we can do that. Yeah, we've got to go very, very carefully. I wonder how closely you're watching what's happening in Sweden. There is a lot of people that are looking at what happened with Sweden. They didn't announce the broader stay-at-home orders, the lockdown measures. They're still testing for people. They've had more cases and incidents than, than countries around them that have. But the economic damage being wrought perhaps will be a lot less through this result. What do you make of what Sweden's doing? And is there some kind of model in there, perhaps, for continuing the social distancing and measures like that, but at least beginning to to, to get back to some degree of normality? Right. So, for example, Sweden and South Korea both have distancing, but they actually, neither countries have severe lockdowns. Neither did uh, the island of Taiwan. And so it, it's, a, it's a funny combination. And, and again, Singapore also had no lockdowns for a while. Um, it's, again, if you have a very high testing, then you catch people much earlier. It's called frontier testing, as I say. Yes. Instead of testing in a hospital like in New York City, where nobody else, unless you're hospitalized, gets a test, these countries are testing at the frontier. As soon as you get symptoms, you're quarantined, isolated, and traced. And that could be another way you could actually defeat this. Yeah, bringing it back once again to testing and tracing and the job that the Taiwanese and the South Koreans did in the early stages. Dr. Eric Fagodin, great to have your insights. Stay in touch with us, please, and uh, stay safe as well. Thank you. Dr. Eric Fagodin there, epidemiologist with the Chan School. All right, coming up on First Move is coronavirus takes a growing toll on police officers and firefighters. A new app is launched to protect our first responders and get them the testing they need. All the details straight ahead. Stay with us. Two tech titans teaming up. Apple is partnering with Google to fight in the battle against coronavirus. The two rivals plan to release software tools that will catalogue newly infected people and everyone they've been in recent contact with. That's called tracing, as we were just discussing. Meanwhile, Stanford University is also teaming up with Apple, launching a new app that connects first responders to drive-through testing sites. If they have coronavirus symptoms, they get scheduled for priority testing. Joining us now to discuss, Dr. Bob Harrington, Chairman of the Department of Medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Harrington, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Just start by explaining how the app works and what information you collect. Sure, thanks for having me. And uh, the way the app works is to try to reach out to the first responder community, Mm. Uh, fire professionals, policemen and women as well as the EMTs. And we did it through our two local counties, San Mateo County, Santa Clara County. Uh, They received an email, each one of them, through a protected uh, site, and they were invited to download the app. Once they download the app, they can read some information about the coronavirus infection. They can take a symptom checker. And depending upon the results of the symptom checker, they're referred to various places. As you've noted in your opening remarks, they may be referred for uh, testing. They may be actually counseled to seek medical attention. So we're trying to really offer them a, a, a way to take care of themselves based upon what their symptoms currently are. 
So around what percent of people that are coming on the app and looking at their symptom, symptoms do you recommend go get testing or perhaps even if they're unwell enough just have to stay at home? What's the, what's the ratio of people that you're saying, look, you need to get tested now? Yeah, we don't know yet with the first responder community because we literally just launched it last week. What we can tell you in our experience thus far is that about half of the people that our primary care doctors have screened, we've referred on to testing. The other half have gone on to um, to convalesce at home, repeat if they have symptoms, et cetera. But our experience has been roughly half, but that's not the first responder community yet. No, we're going to have to wait and see. So once you decide, okay, you need to go and get a test, they then get priority at mobile testing sites. We've seen these around the world. The fact that you have these mobile testing sites is fantastic. But just explain that process too. Yeah, so once they take the symptom checker, if they're referred on for express testing, uh, we have five testing centers throughout the Bay Area. Our largest one is on the Stanford University campus. We've turned one of the large parking lots into express testing. Uh, They come through that and they're assigned a lane uh, where they will meet with medical professionals to fill out a little bit of information. Uh, on them, particularly so that we can contact them with regard to the test. And then another medical professional does the nasal swabbing and that then gets stored on site and then picked up several times a day uh, back to our laboratory for testing. So it's a very efficient process. People don't have to leave their cars. It minimizes exposure both from the medical professional side, but also from the first responder side. It works very efficiently. Uh, At full capacity in this parking lot, we ought to be able to take care of 750 to 1,000 individuals a day. Wow. This method, this app, this process for me looks like something that should be scaled up if possible, at the city level, at the state level, beyond. Would you agree with that? Are you having any discussions? Because this is fantastic and not actually just about frontline workers. It should be expanded to others too. We agree with every single point you've made. We're looking, number one, at first seeing, do we launch it in our local counties? Can we expand it to other frontline workers, including grocery store workers? food service professionals, people who really are out there on the front lines and exposed to the public. So as we think about how it goes with first responders, we'll widen the circle. And look, we're a university. We want to educate. We want to share. Uh, And we are very anxious to share with people around the country as to what we learned from this. And can they use uh, our learnings to help in their own communities? We absolutely see that as part of the goal here. It seems like a small price to pay at this moment, but what about privacy? Because there will be people going, you know, I'm giving up my personal information. Is this going to be held against me at some point in the future? How are you protecting people's privacy with this too? We, we, we share your concern and we also want to make sure that privacy is protected. Uh, number one, there is no sign-in registration required. So they've been invited to the app, but no specific sign-in registration required. Number two, so we don't have an identifier on them. Right. Number yeah. two, the information is being stored on their local device and not shared with either Stanford or Apple unless the individual would like to do so. Uh, So we have the ability to ask them if they'd like to share their information with Stanford, uh, but we do not require it. We've had other experience with these apps in large-scale trials with Apple 
did a large project with them called the Apple Heart Study, where we were able to share all of that information back with Stanford uh, and keep that information on our protected research service. Yeah, I mean, the hope is that people will share this information because it gives us a sense of herd immunity, what proportion have symptoms, what, what's going on to help us track it. But the idea of having protections in place, too, is, is a good thing. Dr. Bob Harrington, keep us updated, please, with your progress, because this is phenomenal. And um, we thank you for your work to protect frontline workers. Great to have you with Thanks us. Thanks for your interest. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break. Here on First Move, the British Prime Minister thanks the NHS for saving his life. He also name-checks a couple of nurses worth a special mention. Stay with us. That's after this. Welcome back to First Move. Our healthcare heroes from around the world continue to put their lives at risk to help save the lives of others, leaving their friends and family to watch and fear from a distance. Yet there's also pride in seeing that sacrifice, as the mother of nurse Jenny McKee explains after her daughter was praised this weekend by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Makes us feel exceptionally proud, obviously. Um, but she has told us these things over the years and it doesn't matter what patient she's looking after. This is what she does and I just find it incredible. This is what she does. More gratitude to medical staff can be found in Brazil where the iconic Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro was lit up to look like a doctor. And then there's this. Bocelli echoes around the Duomo Cathedral in Milan without an audience. The Italian tenor live-streamed a concert on Easter Sunday to promote love and healing. And we'll do the same. Stay safe wherever you are, please. And we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.